Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. Jill will be back next week, and we already miss her. Oh, Jill. Jill, picked a, picked a wrong week. What's the line from Airplane and picked the wrong week to stop sniffing glue? Damn, Jill, I picked the wrong week to go on vacation, quit. sister. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you all know, it's been a wild week. And today we will be discussing the indictment of Donald Trump. I've been waiting to Woo-hoo! say that for a long time. The federal indictment. Federal indictment of Donald Trump. Uh, we'll also talk about the Supreme Court uh, delivering a modest victory for voting rights and the Tennessee judges order striking down a ban on drag shows. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. So I know we have a lot to talk about with this Trump indictment. Um, and I also want to appreciate my sisters for um, working hard between um, news commentary today and moderating a talk with the former Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, today to accommodate my schedule because I'm doing something incredibly important, which is taking my daughter to downtown Detroit tonight for the Taylor Swift concert. There is simply nothing more important in life than that, right? I mean, no, I'm serious. That's it. Well, I would agree, except I don't even get to go to the show. I'm just like taking her and her friend. Oh, it's too expensive for me to go. It? Are oh, you yeah, yeah. kidding? That's so an she outrage. and her friend are going, and oh. I'm going to go, you know, find some place to but, set up shop and uh, well, read but or Well, Barb, work. have you seen that Swifties have been gathering outside of her shows for mm. people who can't get tickets mm-hmm. and having this outside of the show experience? And oh, it's been well. apparently like really good community and great music. You should do that. And, and report uh-uh. to us. Send us taped, you know, like tape what you can hear and send it I'll to us. I'll come back with friendship bracelets. It'll be cool. <laughs> but it got me thinking, um, sisters, like tell me about a, a great concert experience that you've had. Like what was maybe your first concert or your favorite concert or a meaningful concert? Any, uh, any good uh, experiences that you can share there? I have a good one. It was one from a, a few years back. And so what, one morning, I, I don't remember if I saw it on Twitter or I heard it on the radio, but it was like a Tuesday. It was a work day. And I suddenly found out that Stevie Wonder was going to play a free concert in Washington, D.C., in a park in Washington, D.C. And it was a surprise thing, right? And it turns out he was doing, in one day, doing surprise cons, pop-up concerts in D.C., Philly, and New York City. And D.C. was first. And it was going to be at like 10 in the morning. And so I immediately start like texting my friends. I'm like, that's it. I'm playing hooky. I'm calling in sick. I don't care what it is. I'm getting down there. And I texted my friends and none of them could go. They all had work obligations. I did too, but you know, it's Stevie Wonder. So I make my way down. I just book down to where this park is. And there's maybe a couple dozen people there because word hadn't gotten out yet, right? And we're waiting. And so I'm right in front of this you know, the concert thing was sort of set up. This The stage was set up outside and I'm right at the front. And sure enough, Stevie Wonder comes out and plays for like an hour plus. It is fantastic. There's no more than a couple hundred people there. And it was just so special and wonderful. And he sounded great. Now, by the time he got to Philly and New York, word had got out, right? So thousands and thousands of people had descended on those venues. But in DC, we had this like, block party where there were no more at the height than a couple hundred people like on a weekday morning jamming to Stevie Wonder. It was really one of the most special things I've been a part of. You know, that is utterly amazing. I'm just literally sitting here dripping with envy because that sounds so good. I, um, 
I love concerts. And as a native of Los Angeles, I got the chance to see a lot. I, I, it's possible that in my misbegotten high school days, we may have spent a little bit of time chasing around to see if we could find Steely Dan when they used to occasionally pop up and play in these little clubs down in Malibu. Um, and then as a, as a young lawyer, I actually saw R.E.M. before they got huge. At Kim, I wonder if you know this theater. I don't know if it's still there. The Schubert Theater in D.C., it, um, it's on 9th Street, or it used to be on 9th Street. It was small, and we were in the sixth row, and I have never forgotten how good they were that close up. But my favorite concert, you can tell I could talk about this for days, and I won't because we have stuff to get to. But my husband and I went to see the B-52s when I was pregnant with our first kid. And during the song Love Shack was the first time I ever felt him move. He went nuts and started um, <laughs> rocking and rolling. And it's hey, one of those Shack. things that, you know, you never forget. Oh, honey, the first time I ever um, felt you move. But um, love, love concerts. Barb, I hope you have a fabulous time tonight, even if you're not in the arena. Yeah, thank you. It's it's fun. You know, my, my daughter and her friend are super into it. So it, it'll be fun to experience it through their eyes and ears. So it'll all be fun. So lots of movement in the last week with Trump and particularly in connection with the Mar-a-Lago investigation. And y'all know I had a whole list of questions I wanted to ask you to get your thoughts about it. And then yesterday, with very little warning, there's an indictment in Florida. Today, the indictment gets unsealed just, um, I think, about an hour or so before we taped today. We actually saw the indictment itself. And, and I think rather than going ahead with sort of a preordained idea of questions, uh, let's just talk about what we know so far. I mean, Kim, do you want to start and talk a little bit about what you see in this indictment and what your thoughts are? Yeah, I'm probably the worst person to start today because we are literally, you guys, you are hearing us on the fly and this is in real time that we are digesting this. I actually just came from an event in Boston where former Attorney General Eric Holder, uh, Barb and Joyce's former boss, was at. So I haven't even had a chance to go through the indictment. Um, but, but he said really nice things about Barb and me, right? Well, he said nice things about Joyce. He said <laughs> he does everything that Joyce Fan says. That's not true. He loves Barb. <laughs> I didn't, to be fair, I didn't, I didn't ask about Barb, but I didn't have a lot of time. I just, you know, was trying to get in the question about uh, Joyce's chocolate chip cookies in this time, but, but I digress. <laughs> I think just off the top, the importance of this is a couple of takeaways. I think it's really important for us to understand this and it, in no disrespect to Alvin Bragg at all. But these charges are far more serious. When we're talking about the Espionage Act, okay, I know people hear that and think about, oh, it's, you know, like spying and, you know, giving secrets to foreign. Even if that doesn't happen, there is a reason, very strong, important national security reasons, and I want to hear Barb talk about this because she's the expert on that, that we have laws that criminalize the mishandling of sensitive documents. They don't even have to be classified under the Espionage Act. But we have a reason that we keep these documents protected. And what is clear is that Donald Trump didn't just mishandle documents. This wasn't accidental. The more we are hearing about the evidence that exists is that he had a lawlessness about him with respect to them. He knew what he was doing was wrong, allegedly. 
I'll say allegedly to all of this. He is uh, assumed innocent until proven guilty. But the evidence suggests, uh, according to what is uh, what is being alleged, that he knew he had documents that were not declassified with his mind or by any other means. And he kept them anyway. And he defied the, the directives by federal authorities to give them back. And that is problematic. We cannot allow that to happen in our country because it puts, puts potentially all of our security at risk. So moving forward, I'm going to be looking for why he had them, what he potentially had to gain. Because I think one thing I have learned from covering Donald Trump from his ascension into national politics is he does everything because there's something in it for him. And that's where I, my lodestar will be as I cover this, as I look at this, uh, and as I watch these things play out. So I want your, you guys' thoughts too. You know, so Barb, I've been dying to hear your take on this because you have a national security background. Um, You understand the entire classification system, why these documents matter, what our relationships with foreign countries look like. How do you feel now that you've seen some of the actual conduct that Trump engaged in? Yeah, it's far more extensive than I expected it to be. You know, so much has been written about this case that I kind of expected to know what it would look like. But it was reported that it was seven counts. It's actually 38 counts. Um, Part of that is because they identify 31 particular documents that they refer to specifically and they they describe them by nature. Of course, they can't disclose the secrets that are in them, but they relate to things like, you know, confidential briefings about um, foreign countries, about military capabilities, about nuclear capabilities. And so one of the dangers of the way that Trump treated this classified information is we share information with foreign allies. We give them information and they give us information. And we do that so that we can all work together as allies on the world stage. If you know that this former president and possibly future president is so reckless with your secrets, I think if you're an ally, you become less likely to give secrets to the United States, which would be to the detriment of our national security. But um, one thing uh, about the charge though, Joyce, is that as you note, it's charged under the Espionage Act and not under the, the the law that makes it a crime to mishandle classified documents. And I think one of the significance, uh, significant reasons is that the Espionage Act makes it a crime to willfully retain documents or information about the national defense. It does not require that documents be classified. Part of that is because the Espionage Act was passed around World War I before there was a classification system, which didn't come along until later. But I think it's important because to the extent that Trump either says he did classify, declassify the documents or thinks he declassified the documents or can convince a jury that the government can't prove that he didn't know he didn't declassify the documents, all of that nonsense is off the table as long as you can show they pertain to the national defense. And based on the description about military capabilities and nuclear capabilities and those kinds of things, it appears that they absolutely pertain to that. So um, I think it is a very serious matter. And as uh, Kim has said, this is not an inadvertent, oh, I brought home a bunch of boxes and I had no idea what was in them. This was a, a long a term scheme to prevent the Justice Department from finding what he had, lying about it, concealing, covering up, moving boxes. Um, and so I uh, I think it's a very serious crime and very distinguishable from the kinds of things that we've heard about Joe Biden and Mike Pence retaining documents after they left office. You know, whether or not something is national defense information is a, 
a question of fact, which means that if there's a trial, the jury gets to decide whether these charged documents are national defense information. So I want to underline the point you make, because I think it's an important one. The government in this extremely well-drafted complaint sets that up in the third paragraph. They start by talking about the sorts of documents that Trump was pilfering while he was the president and putting into his um, little treasure boxes. And some of the information included information about defense and weapons capabilities, both for the United States and foreign countries, U.S. nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States and its allies to military attack, plans for possible retaliation in response to a foreign attack. This is hardcore national defense information. And to the extent that there's been some suggestion that juries might want to um, be tribal, right, that there might be some jurors who would not want to vote to convict the president, I think DOJ has done a great job of posturing this case in a very apolitical fashion that talks about national security and not who you voted for in the last election. But they did bring it in Florida, Barb. Did that surprise you or do you think there's something strategic going on? It did surprise me only because early on, you know, we were hearing that Washington, D.C. grand jury was looking at this case and was making rulings about who would have to testify and the like. But when you read the indictment, it is apparent that the bulk of the illegal activity occurred after Trump left office and in Florida. And so for that reason, it makes sense. You know, the law says that venue uh, cases should be um, filed and tried in the district where the conduct occurred. Um, and sometimes you can have more than one choice. Like if conduct began in one district and passed through another district and ended up in yet a third district, you could charge it in any one of those. If there's a conspiracy, you can charge a, a case any place, any part of the conspiracy occurred. But um, I do think that there was a critical nexus of facts that occurred in Florida. And if they had charged this in Washington, which, you know, some argue you might have a more favorable jury pool in Washington, D.C. than you have in Florida, I think they would have invited motions to dismiss the case for improper venue, which could delay the ultimate trial. And I think you want to get this case tried before the 2024 election. So for that reason, I think it's probably more legally sound and probably strategically shrewd to file the case in Florida. I don't know. What what did either of you think? Do you think it's a mistake to do that? No, I, I think, well, so, and, and I appreciate the prosecutor's view of this, um, the, the prosecutor's eyes perspective of this. One thing that I thought, and I don't know if this is why, right? But one thing that I think is good that this is proceeding in Florida is because if this was proceeding in Washington, D.C., the first thing that Donald Trump and his acolytes would say is, well, you know, the liberals in D.C., they hate me and they're trying mm -hmm. to come and get me. This is Miami-Dade County, which went not only solidly for Donald Trump, but more solidly for Donald Trump in 2020 than it did in 2016. He cannot claim that this is some sort of uh, political, politicized judiciary. And I, I even have mixed feelings about the fact that uh, Judge Aileen Cannon is on this case. Y'all remember Judge Cannon. Judge Cannon is one of the reasons why we got the special counsel in the first place, because she kept making rulings in the initial part of this investigation uh, that ended up being overturned by even the very conservative 11th Circuit there. This is a Trump-appointed uh, judge who seemed to be engaging in a bit of activism. But listen, at the end of the day, this is going to go before a jury. 
And I think, I believe in the people who are uh, going to be in the jury pool and selected to come to a just decision. And at the very least, if there's any shenanigans on the part of Judge Cannon, we've already seen the 11th Circuit be able and willing to step in here. And again, you cannot say that it is some judge. judge uh, one of the worst things, threats to the rule of law, is the way Donald Trump attacks judges. He's been doing that from the beginning. And I think if he's unable to do that in this case, that could be a benefit. What do you, what do you guys think? That's an interesting perspective, Kim, because if, you know, I know our listeners can't see me, but you can. And I'm doing <laughs> All I can tell you. I'm replicating that emoji, you know, the scream. <laughs> ah! I saw her name on the indictment and thought, oh my gosh, how can it be her? I'm still, I'm still holding out some hope that there's some way it's not going to be her. But um, she was so awful in yeah. the search case. And I do worry that, uh, you know, she could really wreak havoc in this case. I agree with you that it takes the political issue off the table. You know, Trump loves to go after the judges. I mean, she he appointed her and she's ruled in his favor in the search. But boy, her decision in that search issue, remember where she wanted to appoint a special master and all that, was so contrary to law that I really worry about what she could do in this case. And I think she could do a lot of things to really delay it. Uh, or you know, she gets to make decisions during voir dire. She could really help stack the deck. So I, I, I don't want to engage in that kind of thinking because uh, like you, I think one of the real harms that Donald Trump has done to our country is to undermine public confidence in the judiciary. But um, I don't know, on this one, it might be well-placed. Joyce, what about you? What do you think? You know, the reporting has been all over the place and I, I may have missed something because we've all been running around today, but I didn't have clarity that she actually was the judge. The case would be assigned well, to her, her trial. Well, her stamped on the indictment. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, now that it's unsealed, it seems much more likely to me that she is. I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that Judge Cannon may, um, I'll say voluntarily in quotes, recuse on mm. this one. Given her fast her her track record um, in this case and the law in this circuit, this is the eleventh circuit where um, I am as well. And I'll, although it's a squishy standard, the law here says that a judge should not stay on a case if their uh, appearance of a conflict is so extreme that it would undermine public confidence in the objectivity of the judiciary. You know, we're sort of an old school conservative circuit, even though Miami's included. We're very Southern. We worry about things like the appearance of judicial impropriety. I really would not be surprised to see her walk away from this case. Well, I don't know. I, I'm I'm a little more skeptical because I think of recusal issues as things like I have a financial stake in the case or I know somebody in the case or one of my relatives is involved in the case. The mere fact that you've ruled against a party in some way in the past, even if it turns out to have been wrong or egregiously wrong, is often not enough to get a judge recused. Well, I guess and unless, fact, as you say, it's voluntary. No, I mean, that's correct. That is explicit in this circuit, that it can't be, you know, purely based on people disagreed with your ruling. I think here there's a little bit more than that. She made egregiously bad rulings. Um, I know you remember the tenor of those 11th Circuit opinions. It wasn't like, you know, you got it wrong and it was a close call. It was like, hey, you didn't have jurisdiction to hear this matter from the outset. And there is, of course, the appearance 
of her bias for Trump in a tremendously important case that will undercut public confidence. I mean, if there is an acquittal in front of Judge Cannon, people will talk about that forever and it will be hard for folks to accept it. Take any other judge in the circuit, and I think that there are three or four other Trump appointees, you know, there are Obama appointees, there's a Clinton appointee, there are even a couple of Bush appointees. Um, you know, people will say it's it's a judge doing their job, um, at least for the most part. But like you, Barb, I am very skeptical that she can conduct a fair trial in this case. And I think there are numerous opportunities she would have um, to, in a subtle fashion that couldn't be addressed on appeal to really stick her thumb on the scale of justice. So that's something that I think is disturbing. What else jumps out at you guys now that we've seen the indictment itself? One thing that jumps out at me is if you read this thing, there's a it's a speaking indictment, as they say, which is they kind of show a little bit of the evidence. It isn't just the bare bones, you know, parrot the language of the statute. They actually describe some of the evidence. And it appears that some of their key witnesses are going to be Trump's lawyers and Trump employees. They've got text messages and notes um, from the lawyers based on conversations. And they've got some quotes from Trump about saying like, oh, well, what if we just tell him here are the documents and we don't show them all of them and we keep some of them and um, uh, you know, directing Walt Nauta to move the boxes around. And when Nauta gets questioned, he lies about it and says, oh, I don't know anything about it. I honestly wish I could help you, but I just don't know anything about it. And they've got text messages between him and a coworker talking about moving the boxes. So I think that's some really powerful evidence when there is kind of this chronicle that occurred in real time and when the witnesses are Trump allies. You know, these are not um, uh, people he can paint as his enemies or as uh, an overzealous government in any way. Not as an interesting character because he is a co-defendant. He's been charged. There is a possibility that he would flip and testify against Trump, but I don't think they need him to because they've got his, uh, you know, messages text messages back and forth. So I, I don't think they need any of that. They could try this case today with this evidence and, and have a very strong case. What do you think, Kim? Yeah. And the, the thing that's interesting about NADA in particular is we have talked on more than one occasion uh, about the fact that when you enter Trump's orbit, there are right. often not good things waiting for you. And, and in this case, I think it's probably the clearest example of that. You have someone who serves served as Donald Trump's valet and it seems was following his orders and doing his directives. And what did it get him? What did it get him? It got him a federal indictment. Yeah. Uh, in when which, do these people learn? I mean, what is the allure? Learn, what is right? the allure? Uh, Every, everything he touches dies. Yeah. No one ever seems to get that. The reverse Midas. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good title um, for the episode. Hey, so y'all, this is this is a little bit of empty speculation on my part, but I think we're entitled to have just a wee bit of fun today. I found one really interesting reference in the indictment. This is on page 23 for those of you at home who want to follow along. Not only are there Trump messages between lawyers and staff and other people, there's even a text message. The date is super interesting on May 30th, oh, 2022. This appears to be from Melania Trump to Walt Nauta. Maybe I'm I'm overreaching. It sounds like Melania. And the text reads, Good afternoon, Walt. Happy Memorial Day. I saw you put boxes to POTUS room. Just FYI, and I will tell him as well. Not sure how many he wants to take on Friday on the plane. We will not, not is all in caps, have a room for them. Plane will be full with luggage. 
thank you, <laughs> exclamation point. And he responds that he understands that, and, and he says... With a smiley face emoji. Right? Yeah. I mean, smiley face. This is to like... Offset my so, scream emoji. It's a little bit humanizing. <laughs> but um, Nauda says to, to her, I think he wanted to pick from them. I don't imagine him wanting to take the boxes. He told me to put them in the room and that he was going to talk to you about them. Mm. This is why the timing is interesting, right? That's May 30th. On June one. Trump then speaks with one of his attorneys, presumably Evan Corcoran, based by the description of attorney one's conduct, and says, you know, hey, are you coming to Mar-a-Lago tomorrow to start looking through the boxes? I mean, this is utterly the stuff of obstruction conspiracy dreams. Like Barb says, the case is ready to try. Um, Do you guys think, I mean, this is Trump. I get that this is going out on a limb here. The evidence is killer. Does he plead? Do his lawyers talk with him about the need to try to negotiate a guilty plea here? No, no. Let me tell, okay, I'm going, this is purely my speculation, right? There's no way that Donald, this part is not speculation. There's no way that Donald Trump Trump cops the plea. His entire worldview is wrapped around the fact that you never, you never admit to anything. You never, he said that he did not believe that he needed to repent for any sins. Like if, if, (laughs) you know, the Lord came down today and said, Donald Trump, what have you done wrong? And he would, he would say absolutely nothing. So I don't think that there is any way that he pleased. But one thing that I'm going to be looking out for as the presidential election campaign season moves forward, is who might be the first Republican candidate to say to Donald Trump, hey, drop out, back me, and I'll pardon you. Would Mm. that be something he considers? Maybe, because I think one reason he is campaigning is to protect himself from these charges, which he knew were coming, and he could at least try to deflect and delay using his presidential campaign as a tool for that. So I think if someone dangles a pardon in front of him, I don't know. I don't know. You know, he'll never get another Big Mac in prison, right? That has to be weighing (laughs) on him pretty heavily at this point. But I mean, Kim, I think you raise a really interesting possibility there. And perhaps the um, final act in this entire sad, tawdry affair would be somebody who promises him a, a, you know, a pardon not delivering after they're elected Ooh. because that is not an enforceable that agreement. That would be poetic right? justice, actually. It would be it? lovely. Yes, that, that's very... I, I should preface what I'm suggesting is completely counter to the rule of law. Like, absolutely, you cannot exchange a pardon for anything of value. It, this is supposing that it would be provable that it happens, but I wonder if there is somebody who has a bit more savvy in terms of trying to sell pardons than Donald Trump had. That that could be really dangerous, but I'm wondering if that's something that could happen. No, I don't think he will plead guilty. Uh, I just don't think he has it in him. I think he is, uh, you know, as Kim said, never admit fault, never give in, never stop fighting. I think he will paint this, you know, I, I don't think in a criminal case you can do what he did in the E. Jean Carroll case, which is just not to show up at the trial, you know, to suggest somehow this is beneath me and I'm too busy and I don't show up for trial. If uh, I think he, he has to show up for his criminal case. He does. He's got to be there. Yeah. So, um, no, I think he just continues to maintain that this is all a politically motivated witch hunt. You may notice, you know, he's been all over his Trump's Truth Social pushing out messages, and he's now calling it the box hoax. 
which is a very interesting <laughs> set of terms, right? Like it's just about a box. Yeah, it's a couple of boxes. What's the big deal? The box hoax. Um, and, you know, really suggesting that this is all uh, a hoax. He's going after Jack Smith. He's going after Jack Smith's wife. Uh. So this will be scorched earth. And uh, I think he's going to take his chances. And I, I think he's going to, he's already using it for fundraising. I think, you know, grievance and uh, victimization are his calling cards. So I think he'll use it to campaign on. You know, he is just so stinking predictable. Um, but today, June 9th, 2023, uh, a year ago precisely, we were preparing for the first of the January 6th committee hearings. It's remarkable to me the transformation that we've had in this country in, in a year. A year ago, no one believed that our system was sufficiently strong to hold Trump accountable. We've made progress. I think my last question for y'all, um, and Barb, I'll start with you. I mean, we served at DOJ together. The rule of law matters to all three of us as lawyers. We get how important it is to the foundation of the American political system. What would you like to see DOJ do in the course of this case to further public confidence in the rule of law and our system of justice? Well, I think Jack Smith did a good job um, starting down that road today. He did a very brief press conference uh, to announce the charges, which I think is called for because people don't know who he is. What's this all about? Trump is kind of controlling the airspace. And so I think it was good. He gave a very brief comment about the charges. He invited the public to read them themselves, which I thought was good. But he did talk about the, what we owe to um, the people who serve our country in the military which I think was an effort to appeal to all Americans, uh, to people who serve in government and safeguard our nation's secrets, that there is one set of laws that applies to everyone. And uh, he thanked the FBI for their diligent work in the case. So I think that kind of uh, no-nonsense, straight-shooter kind of approach is the way to go in a case like this. Maybe even, you know, welcoming the challenge of the trial and welcoming the challenge of doing it in Florida before someone who might even be a hostile judge, um, I think is, you know, is, is, is the way that they will show that uh, the Justice Department is independent and adheres to the rule of law. And I will add to that by saying I would love to hear from Merrick Garland again, not to put, not to do anything beyond the public statements he made after the search the legally executed search at Mar-a-Lago just to explain to the public, and I agree, this is a speaking indictment, that is important, but to ins explain to the public exactly what is going on in clear terms. And I would hope that that um, address also blunts one thing that Donald Trump and his acolytes are doing, which is saying, Donald Trump is being indicted by Joe Biden or Donald Trump is being indicted by Joe Biden's Justice Department and that's his political opponent. And he, so first of all, that's that's projection, right? Because, I mean, this is he, he this is the candidate who won by saying lock her up, by saying you prosecute your political enemies. He is projecting what he would do if he, you know, what he tries to do on someone else who is actually not doing that. Joe Biden had, had has had nothing to do with any of this. He has stayed so far away, as a president should, from a Justice Department-involved investigation as he possibly can. I think Merrick Garland would do a great deal of good by blunting that and speaking clearly about what is and is not happening so that the American people understand it. 
Yeah, I could not agree more. There are constraints, right? As a DOJ prosecutor, you cannot go beyond the four corners of the indictment in terms of specifics of the allegations. You can't suggest the defendant is guilty. Donald Trump is entitled to all of those protections, innocent until proven guilty by a jury of his peers. But I think you can help people understand the process and how you expect it to work. And I would go a little bit further. I'd actually go outside of DOJ and Chief Justice John Roberts. If you are listening to this podcast, (laughs) I think the most important thing that could happen would be for the Chief Justice to enter a long overdue order authorizing the use of cameras in federal courts so the American people can watch every last minute of the proceedings in this case. There is nothing else like a little bit of sunlight that will um, bring confidence to these proceedings, particularly if, if Judge Cannon stays on the case, and ensure that people understand, hear the allegations, can think through it for themselves. It would be a real national moment if the Chief Justice would do that. Now, you all could have knocked me over with a feather this week when the Supreme Court actually enforced the Voting Rights Act instead of taking another sledgehammer to this. So I will say one one reason why I had not read Donald Trump's federal indictment as closely as Barbara Joyce's because I just came Uh, I'm in Boston right now at an event at the Kennedy Library that commemorates uh, President John F. Kennedy's civil rights speech in 1963 that was meant to call for civil rights legislation to protect the rights of Black people in America. This is before the Voting Rights Act and before the Civil Rights Act. This was in 1963. Uh, And it came after federal law enforcement was dispatched to allow students to integrate colleges in Alabama, Joyce's home state. Now we have this ruling also out of Alabama, Joyce. Roll Tide, baby. Yeah, it involves the congressional maps in Alabama, which were thrown out by a court in a challenge that alleged that they were gerrymandered to dilute the voting power of Black Alabamians. And... The Supreme Court, after first staying that opinion before the midterms, allowing those maps to stay in place, came out this week and with a ruling that threw them out. So, Joyce, were you surprised? And what does this mean for Alabama and other states like Georgia and Louisiana? Yeah, so, you know, Kim, you and I discussed this earlier in the week, and I have tried to use you as my role model on this case because you're so smart and sensible, like you always are about Supreme Court decisions. I have become so jaded that I just don't believe anything good comes out of this Supreme Court and that there's a Trojan horse buried in every opinion that looks like it might actually guarantee rights to um everyday Americans like me and other Alabama voters, but I'm trying to soldier on and see the good in in this opinion. And I'll tell you, it was very surprising. You know, when I first read, so a case like this, a voting case is decided 
in the first instance by a three-judge panel. We had one federal district judge and two appellate judges from the circuit who looked at this in the first instance, and then it gets appealed straight to the United States Supreme Court. And the district judge, a fairly recent Trump appointee, did such a great job with her original opinion. It was detailed. It was thoughtful. She had obviously gotten up to speed on statistics and how districts needed to be drawn. And the panel was unanimous in saying that Alabama's maps violated the Voting Rights Act. I really thought it had a shot until the case made its way into the Supreme Court. And I'm, I mean, you know, they're looking at this weird map that sort of squeezes most of the black voters in Alabama into one district. There are seven in Alabama, one district that takes in both Birmingham and Montgomery and dilutes the rest of the, the rest of the black vote in the remaining six districts. It's just a terrible map. And I thought surely the Supreme Court will see this for what it is. Um, and they, of course, did not. They declined to enter a stay on the use of that map and, and let it be used. And there was new census data that said, look, the black population is growing in Alabama like it is across the South. And population-wise, there should be two districts where black voters have the at least the statistical opportunity to elect the candidates of their choice. Um, but that didn't happen then. I, I think, you know, what happens now, I hope, is that Alabama will redraw its maps. I saw that our um, attorney general, Steve Marshall, was quoted in the paper today as saying, this case is not over. I do not know how much more over a case can be than this Supreme Court opinion. But nonetheless, it looks like there's some sort of nefarious plan there to um, charge it. Or, or to challenge it in any way possible. But Alabama will, at least under this case, have to draw maps. Here's my Trojan horse cynicism. Oh. I don't think it'll last. Mm. Brett Kavanaugh um, writes a, a concurring opinion, right? He joins the majority. Chief Justice Roberts joins the opinion. Kavanaugh writes concurrence. And he says that it was possible that the authority to conduct race-based redistricting cannot extend indefinitely into the future. And so here's my inner skeptic showing up. You know, Kavanaugh is a pragmatist. He knows that the Supreme Court is at all-time low in the annals of public opinion. They probably can't take another hit this year. So instead of killing off the Voting Rights Act, he's decided to let it go one more time in Alabama. But if he flips votes, then it's 5-4 the other direction. Um, and that's the end of the Voting Rights Act. And that's frankly how I expect to see this end. Ooh, all right, Barb. <laughs> I told you, I am just cynical about this. <laughs> well, Barb, I want to get your initial reaction to this ruling. Were you as surprised, at the very least, as I was? And what does your gut say about how this majority that includes the Chief Justice and Kavanaugh came together? Yeah, I, I was very surprised, like you, because I thought there was really no reason for the Supreme Court to take this case if they were simply going to affirm what the three-judge panel did before. As Joyce said, the three-judge panel struck uh, uh, down the map. And so, you know, we were, uh, we, we should have been all set with that. The, the court only takes up cases where it wants to make a decision. And, you know, this year's only took 50-something cases, an absurdly low number. It leaves lots of other decisions undisturbed. And it could have done that in this case. So the fact that they took it up, it's sort of like when they took up Dobbs, you know, you know, uh-oh, like, you don't, you, don't, you don't need to take up a case just to say, yeah, they got it right. Uh, so I really thought we were going to see 
uh, further gutting of the Voting Rights Act. And so um, I was surprised and pleased with the decision that there's still some hope for the Voting Rights Act. But like Joyce, I am a little bit cynical. I think one possibility is that Chief Justice Roberts has correctly assessed that the court has been moving too far to the right too fast and that they are losing confidence of the American people. And that if they do that, they will lose their authority to lead. Uh, and they may want to keep their powder dry for bigger fights like the affirmative action opinion that I think is going to be coming out within the next couple of weeks where they are likely to dismantle affirmative action in this country. And so if this, if they had completely eviscerated the Voting Rights Act, they would be on very, very shaky territory when they take on affirmative action. And so my view is a little bit like Joyce's. I don't know that this is a forever good news or only momentary good news. I think one of the things you can look at to see Chief Justice Roberts' track record is he likes to do a lot of things in two steps. He'll do this sort of intermediate step, you know, and say not yet. And then down the road, he'll overturn, a, you know, a legal precedent or something yeah. like that. So he likes to chip away. He likes yes. to chip away. He, he is really a, does. what do you call it, a uh, incrementalist. Yes. And so, uh, and but going think, the wrong direction, right? He likes to <laughs> well, roll back rights, not move them forward. Right. Yeah. And, and so, right. And, and so I think that way, um, when things are less dramatic, it's less noticeable to the public and the public uh, resists a little bit less. And it seems like just sort of a slow uh, evolution of the law as opposed to a dramatic change. So I, I remain you know, I guess momentarily relieved that they didn't further, you know, it isn't like they, they did something great. It's just that they right. didn't do something really bad that I expected them to do. It's like, you know, like, hey, my kid didn't write on the walls this time. Hey, good for you. <laughs> yeah, it's like they did the very least. They did the very least. They did not eviscerate the the Voting Rights Act, which is like, we're like, yay, because we were all praised for them yeah, to do for you. exactly that. You know, I, I, I've come to agree with both of you on that front. In the beginning, I don't know if it was my, still my shock or, you know, my nerdy, you know, statutory analytical self, but I'm just like, did they, did they take to heart, you know, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson's really expert, uh, lesson in originalism during oral argument where she pointed out that actually the originalist view of the Voting Rights Act, when you look at um, the, the 14th Amendment, was that this is exactly the kind of statute that the writers of the 14th Amendment had in mind. And this is exactly what they were supposed to do, really taking apart the Alabama Attorney General's arguments that any consideration of race runs afoul of the Constitution, right? Or maybe it is, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts thought that uh, Clarence Thomas's view uh, of voting rights was just way too out there and he couldn't join that and he instead formed some sort of consensus with the liberals. I, the more I think about it, the more that I think you're right. I think that John Roberts kn knows he needs to do something. He hasn't done really anything else when it comes to the integrity of this court and the reputation of this court. Um, and I think he knew that he could probably get Brett Kavanaugh, who after his really just, I I'm still appalled by his performance at his confirmation hearing, thought he could just get on the Supreme Court and people would like him again and it would be okay. And he is desperate for people to like him uh, and, and not think that he's a bad guy. And he thought, okay, I can, I can bring Brett along, at least on this. 
before we eviscerate affirmative action. I think that that <laughs> might be, yeah, that might be what happened here. So, okay. To, one last quick question to you both. We can't talk about this case without talking about the shadow docket, because as Joyce said, the court had a chance to keep this map from going into effect in, before the 2022 election. And it chose not to. And our friend Steve Vladek, who is an expert on the shadow docket, makes an interesting point. He says by by allowing allowing these maps, which now have been deemed, you know, a, a racial gerrymander, to go into effect before the 2022 election, at the very least, it disenfranchised the black voters of Alabama. At worst, it changed the outcome of House control. Because not only did that uh, affect how George, how uh, voters voted in Alabama, but also Georgia and Louisiana. What do you guys think about that? Mm. Yeah, I, I saw that tweet. I thought it was really interesting. You know, I've read his book, The Shadow Docket. It's really excellent. And, um, you know, he talks about how, uh, you know, this isn't just uh, an accidental, um, you know, we're doing things more because it's more efficient or other things. Like, it's a way to really shape the doctrine of the court and by doing it kind of off stage. And so, you know, I, I don't know whether I'm so cynical as to believe that they were trying to um, put a thumb on the scale of the election, but they definitely changed voting uh, outcomes, likely, in a number of districts. And in light of how close the House was, you know, that it made a difference uh, in, in the election. So it's yeah. it's an interesting observation at the least. You know, so look, Alabama was never in play, right? We were going to always have six Republicans go to the House and, and one Democrat. But I got to say... But if you had two majority Black districts, oh, Joyce? Well, if those maps had gone into effect, I mean, we're we're assuming a lot of stuff, right? I mean... I won't I won't talk disparaging stuff about Alabama politics. I think it would have been tough in an election run that close to get a candidate up and running. Maybe yes, and maybe it would have been one more vote. But I've got to say that even if you spot the fact that Alabama's politics are difficult and fraught, I do think it feels like the court put its finger on the scales. And I understand that they needed to go through this whole process to reach this conclusion. But the way the law works and something that we talked about is that when you have a situation like this, you're supposed to grant an injunction. And here that would have militated in favor of forcing Alabama to put one of those newly drawn maps into effect. It was sort of a squirrely situation for an injunction. Um, and I am left with a lingering distaste for the way the Supreme Court handled this case. Well, it's June, which means it's Pride Month. And so we have a legal development that went in favor of the LGBTQ community this week that we wanted to discuss. A federal judge in Tennessee found a state law that restricted drag shows to be unconstitutional. The judge said it was vague, overbroad, and violated the First Amendment. Joyce, you teach first-year criminal law. Uh, those concepts like vagueness and overbreadth uh, ought to sound familiar. What was your thought about this uh, this ruling? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a bad law, right? I mean, this is a law that's clearly designed to to chill speech and and do all sorts of bad things. And it was unconstitutional. And it's delightful to see a judge say that, especially in the great state of Tennessee. I, I can't help, and I, I mean, I don't mean to not be serious about this, but every time I see on Twitter or in the newspaper, my own office has, my former office has done a number of these, you know, yet another child youth pastor or yet another coach mm-hmm. or school bus driver who is being prosecuted for possession of child pornography or mm-hmm. child sexual abuse, I always sort of quietly say to myself, yeah, you know, it's not the drag queens. Um, I- I'm glad a judge stood up for that too. Mm-hmm. How about you, Kim? You know, First Amendment um, rights are not absolute. The government can restrict First Amendment expression through drag shows if it wants to, but it has to show that it has a compelling governmental interest, which it says here is protecting children from <laughs> these drag shows. What What's your reaction to that? So I have been to some drag shows. The most recent one uh, was in Nashville that I went to with my friends. And I can report that no children were harmed during <laughs> this drag performance. So I look askance at this stated uh, compelling government interest in protecting children in this case. Look, we know what's actually happening here. We know that we are at a time that Republican political candidates think that the culture wars are the way to win elections. And we are seeing them full well knowing that these laws that they're passing and and this sort of... uh, campaign against things like drag shows that they're launching runs completely afoul of the First Amendment. Exhibit A, Ron DeSantis went to Harvard Law School. I know he likes to talk about how much he hates elites, but he went to (laughs) Yale undergrad and Harvard Law School. He knows full well how the First Amendment works, and he knows that there are First Amendment protections for all types of uh, expression, including performing, including telling jokes, doing comedy, lip syncing even. That is what a drag show is. You know, all of this is protected expression. They know that. And they know that ultimately these laws, these bogus laws that they're passing will probably be struck down. But what they're hoping for is that they are elected to whatever office that they're seeking before that happens. And they can just ignore that final uh, judicial ruling protecting the First Amendment. But in the meantime, There is a real danger here, and that is the fact that the LGBT community is at risk. There are more assaults uh, and murders against people within the LGBT community than in any other community proportionately. There is just a visceral, it, it seems that this is the most acceptable group of people to discriminate against in a way that leads to a dramatic uh, heightened uh, amount of mental unwellness uh, and depression in the LGBTQ community, of suicide rates in the LGBTQ community. This is deadly serious. And yes, in the end, the First Amendment will prevail, but I really worry about the damage that will be done in the meantime. Yeah, Mm. you know, I think politically they've decided here's a group that we can use as our boogeyman and be the demon, and we're going to use it as a distraction so that people don't ask us too much about why um, 
corporate tax rates are lower than individual tax rates uh, yep. and um, you know why they don't have jobs because they've been sent off seas or, or you know, overseas. Uh, you know, we're going to blame immigrants. We're going to blame the LGBTQ community. We're going to blame people of color. We're going to blame Jewish people, all these other people for all we're of our- We're going to blame they're, woke, they're, even though we don't know even yeah, define yeah. what woke means. <laughs> yeah. But, but as you say, there's a real harm to this. And this one in particular, when it comes to drag shows, um, you know, this is n- not only the people who are performing and the audience for whom it is intended, but if the goal is to protect children, I think that this likely has the 100% opposite effect on children. There are so many children who are gender fluid, questioning their sexuality. And if you send this message that, you know, people who are gay or trans are, are there's something wrong with them, they're dangerous, they're bad, they're evil. It, it just leads to the self-loathing and the depression and the suicide that you talked about, Kim. And it seems that good government, the compelling governmental interest would be to protect those kids and not to demonize them. So I say, you know, good for this judge for this week, it, at least once we have a little bit of good news to share with our listeners during Pride Week. And now is the part of our show we like the most. It's where we answer your questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, please keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we will answer as many of your questions as we can. So our first question comes to us from Tish. In light of Trump's a verdict in the defamation case. I wonder if politicians need to be more careful. Candidates throw insults about each other, and I would say plenty could seem as defamatory, especially from Trump. Can a defamed candidate sue for defamation? Kim, you're kind of our Ooh. First Amendment expert there. What do you think? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I'm really glad that Tish asked it. So yeah, you would think, yes, th- there are all kinds of allegations that are hurling in the political uh arena all the time. So could they lead to defamation? The answer is no. And that is because courts have found, including the Supreme Court, have found that really the pinnacle of First Amendment protection is to encourage healthy and robust political debate even when it's not healthy, even when people are hurling horrific allegations against uh, their political opponents. And if you think what's happening now is bad, I encourage you to look back like at the founding era, like what was going on back then. They accused each other of all kinds of really horrible things. You want that robust political debate. And people who uh, declare their candidacy for office are really signing up to receive that. So it's really difficult to bring a defamation case just on First Amendment principles. But on top of that, there are things called anti-slap laws, S-L-A-P-P. That counts, that stands for strategic lawsuit against public participation that literally prohibits lawsuits that are aimed to silence that kind of healthy political debate. So when you declare your candidacy for office, what you are, what you are essentially doing is declaring that you cannot be, uh, you cannot bring a libel case against your opponents because you know what you're signing up for. And I believe that that is correct under the principles of the First Amendment. 
All right, thank you. Our next question comes to us from Jane, who says, I keep hearing that Trump may very well be indicted at least two more times. He could be convicted and sentenced, but prognosticators have opined that he will never serve time. Why? Well, first, Jane, I, w- I will answer this. I will say nobody knows. So when they say he, he will or won't serve time, I think nobody really knows this because it's just never happened before that a, a former president has been convicted of a crime. But I do think they have a point, and that is former presidents get Secret Service protection for life. Uh, we deem it to be a very bad thing for a president to be harmed, hurt, kidnapped, killed, Uh, And so they get this protection. On the other hand, if Donald Trump were sentenced to a prison term, it would be sort of odd. Would you have Secret Service agents go with him? I don't think so. Perhaps he could serve a sentence in, um, you know, one of these kinds of cells where he gets his own cell, private cell, and Secret Service could be there to make sure he's protected. But frankly, what seems most likely to me is if he's sentenced to a prison term, that he would get a term of home confinement where he would have to stay at his home, um, where he could be protected by the Secret Service. So I think that's probably what they're talking about. But truth be told, I don't think anybody really knows how that's going to shake out. So we'll have to wait and see. And our final question comes to us from Lori, who asks, would you please explain what obstruction of justice means and encompasses? We hear it being used for what seems to be a variety of possible crimes. Joyce, how about that? Can you answer that one? So I think this is a great question. And Lori, thank you for doing this. It's really easy for a group of lawyers getting together to engage in shop talk and to use these terms without stopping to define them. I realized that I did that earlier this week um, on television when I talked about the uh, rocket docket in Miami and had to go back and explain that meant that the judges liked to move their cases quickly and weren't crazy about entertaining unnecessary delays. So obstruction of justice is a good one for this. It's shorthand for a range of statutes found in the 1500 series um, in Title 18 of the United States Code, where the criminal statutes are. And essentially, this is a, a series of laws designed to capture all of the different ways people who are up to no good might try to obstruct, to interfere, to delay, to hinder, or otherwise tamper with a prosecution. It gets everything from um, firebombing a witness's house in retaliation uh, for their testimony, a case that I have prosecuted, to efforts to convince a witness not to testify or leave town, another case that I've prosecuted. And federal prosecutors are grateful that these statutes are so well thought out, that they are so broadly geared uh, to be able to uh, get to anyone who tries to keep justice from being done. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Barb McQuaid. Jill will be back soon. Remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. Please support this week's sponsors HelloFresh, Olive and June, Honey, Osea Malibu, and Helix. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. Oh my God, Jill, of all the weeks to miss, she must be dying right now. I am dying that Jill is not here right now. (laughs) 
Yeah. You know, I really miss out on her perspective, right? Because she is the one who wanted to charge Richard Nixon. Right. And, you know, they wouldn't let her do it. So I would re- really love to hear her thoughts about the parallels. I'm sure we'll get a chance to do it. But somewhere out there, Jill Weinbanks is screaming into the ether about her theories of this <laughs> indictment. I mean, history has really vindicated Jill Weinbanks, right? If they yeah. had listened to her during Watergate, we might not be where we are today. But yeah, oh my God, I cannot imagine Jill being out. I sort of expected that we were going to hear from her today and she was going to say, vacation be damned. I'll, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll find like a phone someplace and join y'all. But I hope she's enjoying herself. I can't wait to hear what she has to say next week. Something tells me she's talking about Watergate with somebody somewhere right now. (laughs) Well, y'all, she texted me last night. I was doing 11th hour and she texted me. She's like, I'm listening to you on TV. And, you know, and she had all this great stuff to say. I really did think she would surface today. 